Good day and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Andy Stone. The airline industry is an enabler of our modern way of life, allowing us to travel far and wide to maintain relationships, explore, and build businesses. Yet the industry is under rising scrutiny from policymakers for its more problematic contribution to global warming. Air travel accounts for a significant portion of worldwide carbon emissions, and as travel continues to expand over coming decades, the industry will find itself increasingly at odds with efforts to fight global warming. Recently, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency indicated that it would regulate airline carbon emissions, creating a challenge for American air carriers in an industry that is not only inherently global, but also bound to fossil fuels. Here today to talk about the issue is our guest, Megan Ryerson. Megan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Andy. Megan is Assistant Professor of Transportation Planning and Engineering at the University of Pennsylvania and a collaborator with the Climate Center on research into energy and emissions challenges that the airline industry faces. Megan, how does this focus on emissions come about, and are emissions the next big challenge for the industry? Uh, Andy, you are absolutely right. It has been a dramatic 15 years uh, for for the airline industry and I would say the aviation system as a whole. This question that you pose, uh, where is the focus of emissions from and are emissions the next big challenge, is really central to my research program ever since I began in, uh, in air transportation research. Uh, my first introduction to air transportation research uh, was at a time when fuel prices were increasing dramatically around 2006, 2007. And the concern of aviation's contributions to, uh, to climate change and their GHG emissions was really growing. And to me, the question that I, I was very interested in was a very practical one. At what price of fuel does sort of 300-mile air travel, you could think the California corridor or the Northeast corridor, at, at what price of fuel does it not become viable to have air travel in that corridor anymore? Or at what price of fuel do we switch to very fuel-efficient but slower aircraft, known as turboprops, that were, uh, that were, that were popular uh, years ago? Um, and being able to look at what I thought were practical solutions uh, that can save fuel, can save emissions, and keep the aviation industry viable has really been a driving force uh, for my research. Uh, and so now I maintain a research program that looks at planning processes. Uh, I design algorithms and help to move the industry forward in terms of reducing fuel consumption, being more adaptable to climate change while continuing to thrive. Aviation is critical to our global, our national, and our local economies. And that's really where my, uh, where my research is, uh, that's really where my research is focused. Uh, airline emissions, uh, aviation emissions, are a large and possibly growing portion of uh, overall emissions. Globally, uh, airline emissions are about 2% two to three percent of global emissions. That's about eight to 11 percent of, of total transportation emissions. Uh, just to put those percentages in context because uh, because they may uh, they may seem a little bit small. You know while aviation is only about two to three percent of global emissions, it is very hard to reduce 
aircraft emissions compared to uh, reducing emissions from other modes. And basically, there are two ways to reduce aviation emissions. There is technology. There's advanced avionics. There's new composite materials for aircraft. There are um, uh, new air traffic management technologies that uh, could allow aircraft to fly shorter routes. Uh, And then there's demand management, which is you could think of as policy ways to reduce flying or encourage people to take a more fuel efficient mode. Uh, However, in many cases, when we're talking about air travel, there is no other fuel efficient mode. Uh, Aircraft are actually relatively fuel efficient. If uh, you're looking at long haul travel, there's some really great work uh, coming out of uh, Mikhail Chester at ASU comparing the emissions of different modes. And aircraft come out really well when you look at long haul travel. And long haul travel is also not really viable in many cases unless you're on an aircraft. So uh, we're really looking at uh, we're really looking at what technologies can we use to uh, reduce emissions. And in certain small cases, where could we possibly reduce some flying to save those emissions? One of the other reasons why it can be so difficult to do you know, demand management in air transportation is that air transportation, as I said and you said, is critical to our global, national, local economies, right? And actually reducing flying is not a goal of any, uh, is not a goal of any uh, government, and it's certainly not a goal of uh, many of the travelers who are looking for more and more air travel. Uh, I want to give you some context uh, as far as the scale of the emissions reduction challenge that we face in air transportation. Uh, in, in the case of Boston, uh, their city estimated that their bike share program saved about 350 tons of greenhouse gas emissions over three years. That's great. That's a really successful, uh, really successful program. When you compare that to a brand new international flight that Boston has that uh, is nonstop to Beijing, the emissions for one year of that flight is 60,000 tons of CO2. So, you know, while I'm sure that flight is a boon to the economy and lots of people are taking it and being able to travel in a, in a very efficient way, uh, you know, time efficient way to Beijing, you know, the scale of the emissions for that flight completely swamps the savings that, we, that, that were made from, you know, a, a rather intense effort on the ground uh, to, uh, to save surface transportation. So that, that flight out of Boston, every, that's a daily flight? And are we talking about the one day's emissions is more than the, the Boston bike share would save? Or? A, a year. Oh, a year. Okay, a year just wanted to clarify on that. Okay, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. For one, one flight a day mm. for a year. Now, you've mentioned that the airline industry is also particularly difficult to regulate. How so? Uh, aviation is 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 difficult. It's difficult to regulate on a number of different uh, a number of different scales. Let's start out with global. Uh, aviation is a global industry, and as a part of that, each nation feels that their competitiveness is tied to the competitiveness of their airlines and their aviation industry. There is a a, a a global sort of regulator of uh, of aviation. This is ICAO, the uh, the International Civil Aviation Organization, and you know they set international standards and they also set international policy as far as you know how international flying um, how international flying will uh, will take place. Um, if anything, uh, ICAO and international aviation has become more and more liberalized uh, throughout the years. Um, 
in uh, in the 1970s, international aviation was highly regulated. There were only a few international routes. In the U.S., there were only a few airports that were allowed to handle international flights. Um, since the changes of open skies agreements, um, now you know airlines can fly where they like. So global aviation can be very difficult to regulate because it's a part of a, a nation's competitiveness and because liberalization allows for more options. Similarly, in the U.S., uh, regulating domestic aviation and limiting domestic aviation is pretty much the opposite of the, the goals of local governments and the Federal Aviation Administration. There is a long history, both in practice and in, and in research, of understanding that local governments believe that airports and air service are the way to grow the economy. You often hear city managers call airports the growth engine of their city. Um, in fact, uh, the FAA about 10 years ago, the Federal Aviation Administration, uh, allowed local governments to use money that they raise on the airport from concessions, from rental cars and things like that, and use it to subsidize the airlines to open up new routes in the hopes of you know, jump-starting the economy and, uh, and building air service. So you know, we, we do have sort of regulations there to support the growth of the aviation industry uh, nationally because local governments really want to grow their economy with growing air service. So domestically and internationally, we have a situation over the last decade or so where regulation has actually liberalized markets, increased competition. How does that translate in potentially into more emissions and a greater emissions challenge for the industry? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, give you a pretty detailed answer here because there are competing forces uh, at play that are sort of changing, changing the way that we fly, uh, both domestically and internationally. Uh, the short answer to your question is, in the U.S., we're seeing a slightly decreased domestic flying, and internationally, we're seeing big boons in international flying. Um, you know, in the past 10 years, uh, we briefly mentioned airline mergers. I mean, since 2000, seven major airlines have merged into three. And what, what did they do? They consolidated their networks. They cut unprofitable flying, which means that uh, if you're in a city like Atlanta or Dallas or um, certainly uh, New York or San Francisco, you're probably seeing better air service. The airlines have strengthened their hubs in those cities. But if you're in a small city like Chattanooga or Huntsville, Alabama, you are likely seeing decreased service because the airlines cut unprofitable routes. Um, and so we're seeing a slight sort of down, downturn in domestic flying and short haul flying. And uh, that has environmental benefits. Uh, it has environmental benefits because, uh, in general, smaller aircraft have higher emissions per mile. And so it's sort of more efficient to have a longer aircraft fly along, uh, a bigger aircraft fly a longer distance uh, rather than a, uh, the, smaller, the smaller aircraft that emits basically the same amount per mile as a large aircraft but has fewer passengers. Uh, so, uh, so that does have possible environmental, uh, environmental benefits. I realize that it has uh, disbenefits for the travelers, you know, less convenience and, and so on. On the other side, the liberalization 
of international, the liberalization of international aviation and the establishment of these sort of joint venture partners that allow the airlines to launch um, new service with lower risk is leading to a dramatic growth in international uh, in international aviation. Um, you know, couple this with the, the Gulf carriers, uh, Qatar and Emirates, um, uh, as well as Turkish airlines that are really fighting for Sort of global domination, right? They have global, they have global airline networks, and they're all looking to sort of establish themselves as the you know, international airline. Uh, we are seeing you know massive growth in uh, in international travel now. As far as how that's growing emissions, that is a that's you know that is a very big question. That many of these airlines are adopting fuel-efficient aircraft for their long-haul trips. You know, the 787 is a great example, the Boeing 787, very fuel-efficient international aircraft. Uh, so we're seeing more international aviation, but we're seeing it in general on more fuel-efficient aircraft. So it's, go- it's going up, but it's you know, not going up as much, uh, as much as it could if we didn't have these advances in avionics. You had you have written about the fact domestically that as some of the short haul routes get diverted away from the regional airports, people might actually have to drive farther to get to the airport before they take their trip. And has there been much research on the balance of the emissions from from that phenomenon? Exactly. Um, this uh, concept that uh, which uh, in the aviation industry we might call airport market leakage, uh, the idea that uh, people who live approximate to an airport that has low service uh, might you know, drive quite a distance, two, three, sometimes even 400 miles to a hub airport to get better service and to get lower cost service. It's, it's something that the airports have known for a very long time. It's something that, that researchers are just, uh, are just picking up on uh, now. There's a much smaller body of research about airport market leakage. And I think uh, one of the reasons that the body of literature uh, on, on this phenomenon is because there used to be very high levels of air transportation service domestically, and that since the airline mergers, we're seeing a, a downturn in service and we're seeing an increase in, uh, in market leakage. I'll say just anecdotally, I had a discussion with um, the manager of a small of a small airport about that's located about 400 miles away from a, a very major a hub airport. And this director told me that they see about 300,000 passengers a year drive that 400 miles to the distant hub. This is a real issue. And you know, when we're when we're talking about saving airline emissions, I, I think the bigger question is saving intercity transportation emissions because with this with this concept of market leakage, uh, the it, it, it's not it's not just the airline network. It's an intercity transportation network of which air travel is a component, right? And this is something that uh, I'm working on you know, currently, and it's 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 a place that I'd like to take the conversation uh, because I think that you know while we're seeing some gaps in the airline network, and we could hail that as savings. Those people are still traveling. And how are they traveling? Are they traveling one by one in a car? Because we know, you know referencing back those comparative mode uh, you know, emissions, um, that comparative mode emissions research I mentioned, we know that if one person is in a single car, 
that's nowhere near as good as having that one person on a full aircraft, right? So uh, that's 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 why I think we need to think of this as a, a network problem. So, so it sounds like we have a situation where ridership is going up. You talked about globally, more people are flying, and the airlines are really competing hard to bring more people in, you know, in into their service. So in a sense, it sounds like it may be a little bit out of step, the whole industry, with where we're going in terms of our concerns for, for carbon and, and lowering emissions, et cetera. So what are the actual options to reduce emissions? What are the tools that are available? So I think the tools that we have available to us uh, fall in you know, two general buckets. There's technology and there's demand management, right? And, and the technology bucket is is very, very big. Uh, there is possible savings from air traffic management technology. So the Federal Aviation Administration is hard at work uh, uh, developing next-gen technologies or next-generation air transportation system technologies. Uh, and they've had uh, some real success um, uh, advanced avionics are allowing aircraft to um, execute more precise navigation. Uh, said more plainly, um, aircraft can approach the airport and land without taking sort of big swings around the airport. Um, and in Seattle, for example, the FAA found that they were saving six minutes per flight, and that's six minutes of a flight taken at low altitude, which is very fuel inefficient, much more fuel efficient to be at high altitude. Uh, and they found they were saving uh, Alaska Airlines um, about 1% of their total flight fuel consumption per flight. That's a, that's a really, that's a great gain. So we have, we have advanced avionics. Uh, that's, um, excuse me, we have uh, advanced air traffic management, which is a way that uh, we can get there. Uh, we also have you know, technology actually on the aircraft. We have advanced engines. We have these advanced composites uh, that make up the aircraft, like the 787. Uh, and in some cases, the 787 can be up to 20% more efficient than you know, similar aircraft uh, that you know, don't have those advanced composites and, uh, and engines. Uh, so it's really possible to get fuel efficiency gains you know, from actually replacing uh, aircraft with more, uh, with more advanced aircraft. So there's the, those areas of technology. Then there's certainly biofuels. And every once in a while, I hear a hydrogen mentioned. I think that's much, much, uh, much, much further off. But uh, we have in the aviation industry had a lot of successful tests with drop-in biofuels. These are blends of you know, traditional fuel and biofuel. And their you know, flights have been able to uh, you know, complete their mission as expected with these drop-in fuels. Um, you know, a large-scale you know, rollout of biofuels would require you know, very, very big changes in the industry. So I think we're uh, you know, uh, far away from that. Uh, but um, it certainly seems like a viable direction uh, to reduce fuel consumption. And I should say the FAA is very hard at work on alternative fuels. They have a very active group within their environmental, um, their environmental division researching biofuels. So that's some of the sort of technology gains. You know, then there's this you know, possibility to think about you know, demand management. And you know, demand management, again, uh, you know, 
There's no one who wants to see a reduction in flying, you know, from the sort of government uh, perspective and from the flying community perspective. There's certainly environmental groups uh, who have uh, who have advocated for this. But when I think about demand management, I think of looking at routes where there might be another mode that could serve that route more efficiently. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion of trains. In the U.S., we have very limited train service, but you know, it could be possible, uh, for example, when the California high-speed rail is built, that we're able to you know, reduce some flying and replace it with rail. You know, it's much more easy. It, uh, it's easier to electrify a car than electrify an aircraft. So uh, you know, maybe as we advance our surface transportation vehicles, might make sense to get some you know, really nice buses and replace some of these short haul routes. But uh, no electric to... planes. No, no, no <laughs> okay. electric planes yet. Um, um, to uh, to save fuel, and that's what I'm talking about. Demand management. That is, uh, you know, that's something that's that's been studied. It's 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 less attractive because uh, a bus doesn't bring business development to a city the way a flight does, right? So you know, just to, that's that's the sort of realistic spin on that. And you know, certainly the the other way to save fuel is to you know is to stop flying or promote telecommunications and replacement for meetings. But you know, I think that what we found is that nothing beats face to face. We as a people, you know, want to be connected and we want to be able to uh, to travel. So, we may need to look at those other components. Got it. Thanks. You know, going back to the issue very specifically of carbon emissions and global warming for a moment, these are going to become bigger issues uh, over time. It's pretty certain. You know, what about the future impact on air travel as potentially carbon pricing comes into play? Can the airline industry escape? Will air, air travel simply become too expensive for the average person or for the airlines themselves to stay in business? Right. Um, the, uh, I'll answer this question in two parts. And the, the first is that I think we're pretty far away from carbon pricing and aviation. And the second will be the what-if scenario um, in the future. Back in uh, 2012, uh, the, um, the European Union wanted to include aviation in their emissions trading system. Uh, the idea, very briefly, is that the EU uh, hands out credits, carbon credits, to the sort of the, the polluters in their um, um, in the union uh, based on the amount of CO2 they emitted in the past year. And then it's on the um, industry to reduce their emissions and cover their emissions with the credits that they're allocated or to buy credits on the open market if they ended up polluting more than they did the past year. Uh, so the EU wanted to include all flights that touch down at an EU airport at these um, at, at an EU airport in their emissions trading uh, system. The response from from China and from the U.S. and from other countries was you know, absolutely not. You know, uh, developing countries that, whose aviation systems are growing incredibly rapidly, they didn't want to be judged on last year's performance because they're growing their aviation system tremendously. Uh, and then countries like the U.S. with a very established aviation system, uh, you know, first of all, were concerned that such a move violated the their international agreements. You know that the that the uh, member states had agreed to, you know, back in the 40s about how they will, you know, interact and how they can regulate and charge one another. Uh, and also the U.S. was concerned about competitiveness. 
Um, and she didn't necessarily want to start, you know, paying and allocating credits, uh, you know, for something that um, they view as a key to their national competitiveness. So the issue was dropped, um, you know, after a tremendous amount of pushback. And so when I think about carbon pricing for the airlines, I just think it's something that we're very far away from because it seems like you know, all policymakers, regardless of you know party and ideology, you know, are out to protect their aviation industry. That said, um, you know, do I think that changes in policy could make air travel you know, more expensive and uh, uh, too too expensive? I think that it's possible in certain markets, and I'll give um, I'll give an example. Um, there's been a lot of press about charge, airlines charging for luggage, and um, that there's been a lot of pushback from the air passenger groups, you know, saying that this is just adding to the ticket price and so on. And while that's that's there's likely a, a true component to that, the airlines are actually doing very well on baggage fees and what these these ancillary revenues. There's a very physical. Uh, relationship between the weight of an aircraft and the amount of fuel that aircraft burns. And so every additional pound of an item that you bring onto an aircraft, that aircraft is burning about a quarter pound of fuel. This is actually... um, uh, I published a paper on this topic looking at the relationship between weight and fuel consumption uh, last year, uh, actually supported by the, the Climate Center uh, and some of my airline partners. And you know that physical relationship was behind some of the motivation to separate the cost of a ticket and the cost of bringing on additional baggage. And you could think of it, if you're a light traveler, you know, you're subsidizing people who are heavy travelers if you don't have baggage fees, right? So it's possible that we might see more of a relationship between how much fuel are you making us spend and how much you pay. You know, that is, uh, you know, that is absolutely possible. Another Another thing we might see with more policies or with something like prices is, again, more reductions in the short-haul travel. Again, the idea that smaller aircraft have higher emissions per passenger mile. That's, you know, they they have two engines. They burn basically the same amount of fuel as a larger aircraft, um, but they have fewer passengers on it. So if we really are, do have higher costs from fuel consumption, those higher costs are going to be felt more by small aircraft, you know, flights on small aircraft than flights on large aircraft, and maybe it will just stop making sense to fly those routes. Um, and maybe we'll see more of you know something I'm very interested in, which is this relationship between surface transportation, rail, and auto, and bus, and air. And um, you know, Continental, you know, now United, but at the time Continental, actually had a partnership with Amtrak where they said, you know, Newark is a very important hub to us, Newark, New York, but, you know, it's a capacity-constrained airport, right? We don't have, um, you know, we can't just have flights from everywhere and everywhere. We're going to partner with Amtrak in the hopes that people on the Northeast Corridor take Amtrak to Newark, and you could actually buy an Amtrak ticket through Continental's, you know, booking service, and you could still do that on United, actually. You can buy an Amtrak ticket to connect through Newark. And so maybe we'll see more and more and more of that as the, you know, the, the penalty for using aviation fuel gets bigger. So it sounds like over time, some of these shorter flights may go to trains. For example, to buses, people will drive, right. something like that. 
We've seen that in a, in, you know, in a, in a very big way uh, abroad, right? In the U.S., we just have a limited uh, rail system, but we've seen that in a very big way abroad. Uh, and, you know, as we possibly get some more train service, like I said, in California, and, uh, you know, maybe with, um, you know, maybe again with buses or some sort of express surface transportation system, we might see that. Now, I'd like to just touch back on one issue we talked about just a few minutes ago, just to kind of sum up here. And it's the issue of competitiveness, okay? And with this new agreement from the International Civil Aviation Organization, which per my understanding will basically, the goal is to halt airline emissions growth from the year 2020, if I understand that correctly. Um, some nations signed on, some didn't. The United States did, European nations did, African nations did. But then Russia and India didn't for competitiveness reasons. Where does this all work in terms of competition? Why would somebody sign on when they're already possibly, you know, not in the best economic situation to compete with other other areas? This is uh, this is very timely, and uh, I think it's going to be fascinating to watch this uh, evolve. Uh, basically, ICAO. Uh, came out with a plan for nations to reduce their aviation emissions. And different uh, ICAO member states, uh, notably the U.S., uh, the EU, and, and China, signed on. And what they said was that the aircraft that they purchase will have reduced emissions compared to a baseline. Uh, It's very similar to cafe standards like we have for surface tra- for, like we have for surface transportation vehicles that's how we in the US we regulate the auto industry uh, to help them reduce their emissions and help you know us as users reduce our emissions uh, it's very very similar the idea that when the airlines place new orders for aircraft those aircraft have to be more efficient you know this is something that at least in the US didn't seem to have a tremendous amount of airline pushback in fact you know and, and this is more anecdotal from news from news reports but in fact some environmental groups you know pushed back and argued that the airlines you know, crafted this legislation and that they were okay with it. Um, but you know, airlines have a tremendous vested interest to reduce their fuel consumption. American Airlines, for example, has this excellent fuel smart program where they're you know unbolting anything unnecessary from the aircraft. They throw out the magazines, right? They don't want an extra pound on that aircraft because they don't want to consume extra fuel. The airlines want to save fuel. It's uh, it's uh, a few years ago it was. 33, 35% of their operating costs. It's just a tremendous, uh, it's, it's just a tremendous number. And so they want to save fuel. And so they want these fuel efficient aircraft. Um, so this will help their competitiveness, or at least let me say, not necessarily harm their competitiveness, because they're looking to adopt, you know, new fuel efficient aircraft anyway, where I think the ICAO rule might, you know, overall increase emissions or not make you know, a particularly large dent in emissions is that, you know, aircraft don't, uh, uh, when, they're, when, when, when a U.S. carrier or a European carrier purchases a new aircraft and then they're done with it, you know, it doesn't, you know, get dismantled and, uh, you know, environmentally disposed of. They sell it to a, you know, to another airline, often an international airline uh, that might be a startup airline or an airline that's less established and you know, doesn't have the cash flow to buy a brand new aircraft from uh, Airbus or Boeing. And so what you find when you track aircraft ownership is that you know, 
aircraft don't go away. They just get passed and passed and passed, and then they become a freighter. And then, you know, all of a sudden it's been 40 years and an aircraft is still in operation. And sure, it might have new engines and it might, you know, have uh, some advancements, but, you know, it's nowhere near as efficient as that brand new aircraft that's being sold today. And so uh, while I think you'll see emissions go down or go down you know, per passenger or passenger mile in the very developed countries, the, in the countries that signed on to this agreement, you're still going to continue to see the, those old aircraft in more developing countries that, uh, that didn't sign on. And that's a part of their competitiveness. Their airlines, their airlines can't afford necessarily the new Airbus 350, but they can certainly buy an old uh, you know, Airbus 310 from, uh, from a carrier that you know, bought it from another carrier previously. I think that is a fascinating open question, you know, how aircraft get passed down and what that means for global emissions. Can you tell us a little bit what's next for you in terms of your research? My, my research has always you know, been on this you know, sort of push-pull between you know, economic development and competitiveness and you know, environmental concern for the aviation, uh, for the aviation industry. So as far as, uh, as, far as n- what's next, you know, one of the first things is this multimodal, uh, m- multimodal network for intercity transportation rather than thinking about airline networks and rail networks and surface transportation. So, you know, right now I'm working on estimating how many auto trips are taken uh, when a small connecting flight between a relatively minor airport and a large airport is canceled. Uh, I used the example of Chattanooga, Tennessee before or or, uh, Huntsville, Alabama. So as flights have been decreased between those airports and major hubs like Atlanta uh, and other places, how, um, how many more autos do we have on the road? And what contribution to traffic are those uh, are those added autos? And I think that linking those two concepts, right, air service and traffic, you know, really brings together all of the modes of transportation. And so that's one direction. Uh, something that we haven't talked about, but is a, is a, is a big component of climate. And my research is in adaptation and recovery uh, from climate events in aviation. So, um, and not just climate events, but also, you know, acts of terror, something that renders an airport, you know, unusable for an extended period of time. How do we divert flights so they're diverted safely, but also diverted in a way that's passenger-centric if anyone has been on a diverted flight, you can know that that can mean hours and hours and maybe days of um, disruption to your schedule. How can we divert flights in such a way that we can reaccommodate passengers very quickly? And you could imagine a scenario where airport outages are happening Let's, let's hope not regularly, but you know, more regularly than they are today. And having a plan for passenger reaccommodation is going to be a really key part of our resilience. Uh, and so this is, uh, this, is, this, is some, this is something that I'm working on, sort of algorithms for climate change adaptation. Well, we've been speaking with Megan Ryerson, professor of transportation at the University of Pennsylvania and collaborator with the Climate Center on Airline Industry Research. Megan, thank you for appearing on the show. Thanks so much, Andy. It was a pleasure. 
Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to Energy Policy Now from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. You can get the latest energy and environment updates from our Twitter feed at Kleinman Energy. Keep up to date on the latest news, research, and events from the Kleinman Center by visiting our website, www.kleinmanenergy.upenn.edu. Thank you.